0: Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and each week we celebrate and commiserate with best-selling authors, parenting experts, and moms around the world. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 145 of Atomic Moms. Today, I have Harvard researcher and early education expert Suzanne Buffard with me. This month, she released the brand new book, everybody, go get it, The Most Important Year, Pre-Kindergarten and the Future of Our Children. So I'd like to get a better understanding of the pre-K debate in this country. And I also want to share techniques that Suzanne observed in the classroom that I know that I can use with my four-year-old at home. Uh, So thank you, Suzanne, so much for coming on the podcast and for helping us out. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so... We have 30 minutes. I want to get as much information out of you as humanly possible. We'll hit the ground running. Hillary Clinton, she ran on the idea of federally funded universal pre-K for all four-year-old children. And New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, he spearheaded this universal pre-K for all four-year-olds, and now he's trying to make it happen with all three-year-olds in New York City. Universal pre-K, it sounds pretty wonderful to me. So I'd like to talk about the criticisms first. Suzanne, let's say we're at a dinner party. And I'm sitting next to you, and my name is Francine, and I'm like, you know, Suzanne, it costs a lot of money. They're going to take developmental notes on your child that could haunt them the rest of their lives. You know, it's government control. The research doesn't back it up. They talk about how it saves money down the line because the kids, like, don't turn into criminals. But you know, it's always citing this one study from Michigan that was, like, from the 1960s. And, you know, so it might be well-intentioned to offer universal pre-K. But, you know, before we all spend all this money, like, shouldn't there be studies that really back up that that it works? Like, what would you say to Francine at the dinner party?
1: Francine is well-informed and has a lot of good questions. <laughs> Fortunately, I and other early childhood experts have— Convincing answers to all of them. So if I lose track of some of those answers, feel free to ask the questions again. First of all, you are absolutely right that we do have research both from the 1960s but actually more recent showing that there are long-term cost benefits to early childhood education. And some of the earliest programs that served low-income children in the 1960s and 1970s are most often cited in part because we have the longest amount of follow-up on those kids. So people who were kids then are obviously adults now. And so we've been able to follow them long enough. I say we. I don't mean me, but I mean my researcher community. Um, we've been able to follow them long enough to know that they do better in school. They're less likely to be in special ed. They're they're more likely to graduate. And as you said, they're also more likely to be productive members of society. They're less likely to be incarcerated. Less likely to be on public assistance. And all of those benefits over a lifetime add up to a cost savings of when you invest one dollar anywhere between three and ten dollars saved over the long term looking at different studies. So that is really encouraging and helpful and have guided some other newer research. So we do now have some great studies from Boston, from Tulsa Oklahoma, from 30 districts in New Jersey and a few other places that show that there are benefits of pre-K going forward. And because those are newer studies, we've only been able to follow kids up until about third or fifth grade. And what we do see is that in the high quality programs, the really good programs, the kids who went to pre-K, especially for two years, are more likely to be doing better in school and to be well adjusted and sort of be on a good trajectory um, for their lives. I do always point out to people, though, that some of the most important benefits of early childhood education are really difficult to measure and we're still wrapping our heads around how to measure those things because a lot of the benefit of early childhood education comes from knowing how to be part of a classroom, knowing how to follow the routines and wait your turn and listen to the teacher and all of those social and emotional things that researchers call self-regulation, that make it easier for kids to learn when they get to kindergarten, and they make it easier for teachers to teach. So we do have some data showing that teachers have an easier time when their kids went to preschool, and also that if you look at the number of kids, say I'm a preschooler, the number of kids or I'm sorry, I'm a kindergartner, the number of kids in my classroom who went to preschool, has an impact on how well I do that year and going forward. Not just whether I went to preschool myself, but how likely the other kids were to have gone to preschool because it makes the classroom run more smoothly.
0: Okay, so now I want to give the other sort of like critic uh, a voice, which would be that, you know, why should we give free pre-K to middle class and to a bunch of rich kids who could afford private preschool? And who already have a million advantages already? Like, shouldn't this money just be focused on low-income children?
1: That's a big debate, and it's a really important debate. Um, Sometimes when you see it written about, it's mentioned as targeted versus universal pre-K. Universal being for everyone and targeted being for families with the lowest income and the least means who arguably need the services the most. I understand that argument and I am sensitive to it. But at the same time, there are a couple of reasons that I advocate for universal. One is that low income children and children of color who tend to receive less quality education services, actually do better in diverse classrooms. So if what we're really concerned about is leveling the playing field and getting to a place where we can start to close achievement gaps, it's actually better for kids to be in diverse classrooms. And the research studies show that for the middle-class kids, they don't necessarily do better than they would if they were in, in home in homogeneous classrooms, but they don't do worse. They still do well. They still do fine. And I would argue that they benefit from that diversity in many ways that we're not measuring on tests. And my family has chosen our school district in large part because it's very diverse and we think it's really important for our kids to grow up with people from all different backgrounds. Now the second piece of it is that, as I, don't, as I probably don't have to tell many of your listeners, even middle-class families are really struggling to be able to afford to pay for childcare and early education.
0: Yeah, my sister is at University of Texas, and a year of college for her is cheaper, is so much less expensive than a year of preschool for my four-year-old.
1: That's right. And there was a study fairly recently that showed that in almost half of states, that was true. That in-state college tuition is cheaper than childcare and early education. And as a result of that, there was also another recent study that showed that about 2 million parents are working fewer hours or not in the workforce, you know, they want to be because they can't afford the childcare costs. So that has a real economic impact on individual families and on the society as a whole. And in the book, I tell the story of many different families as they're navigating this process of finding and paying for early education. And one of the families that I follow talked a lot about how because they were paying for preschool, they couldn't afford to save for a house, they were by most people's standards, comfortable, but they were making choices about their future and their children's futures based in large part on what it was costing to send their oldest child to preschool. And then they ended up deciding that they couldn't afford to send their youngest to preschool until she was eligible for the free public schools program. And that's something that is really common. And when we look around, only about two-thirds of the country's four-year-olds are in some kind of early care program, and about a third of children are in publicly funded pre-K programs. And even though that number has increased quite a bit in recent years, there are still a large number of kids and families who are not in programs because of financial reasons. Now, you also alluded at the beginning to another criticism that sometimes people have about universal pre-K, and that's the idea that some people don't want their children to be in pre-K or don't believe that it's good for children to be outside of their families. And the first thing to note is that pre-K programs are always voluntary and optional, and there is nowhere that it is required. But I think it's also important for people to understand that Early education programs don't replace parenting and family relationships. They supplement them. And, of course, parents are children's first and most important teachers. But there are certain things that kids and parents can get out of an early childhood classroom that they can't get at home. And one of those things is functioning as part of a group and in a classroom. And no matter how well you teach your child social and emotional and self-regulation skills at home, there are some things that just don't come up at home or don't come up in a playgroup when you're there and when when you're with kids that you and your child have chosen to be with. um, There are certain skills about getting along in the world that kids develop better in an independent setting. So we do sometimes still hear this criticism about the nanny state and the fact that kids should be home with their parents, but I really want to reassure people that, I have never seen a pre k program that was trying to take over for the family. Instead, programs actually often have really good strategies and tips and ideas that they can share with families to help make the process of parenting a little bit easier. And when everybody's on the same page, it actually is better for the kids because they're getting support from multiple adults who love them and care for them, and they're getting the best of everybody's information and strategies.
0: I'm excited to get into some of those supplemental techniques with you that we can use with our children. Yesterday with Sabrina, I, I think I asked her a thousand questions. I might have leaned in a little too hard on the open-ended questioning <laughs> because I got so excited about it in your book. But first I want to ask, This is I am I the only one? It seems incredibly confusing right now. I, I keep hearing, you know, there's DK, there's TK, there's ETK. I'm just like, what? Is all of this? I'm assuming that most of this just means school before kindergarten.
1: That's right. And it can be very confusing because there are so many terms. And people sometimes ask me, what's the difference between nursery school and preschool and pre-K? And it, it, there really isn't one. I, I try not to get hung up on terms and, and other people shouldn't either. Often pre-K is used to refer to publicly funded preschool programs. Or where I live, they call it junior kindergarten. In Boston, they call it K-1 and kindergarten is K-2. So there's all this different lingo. But the the lingo doesn't matter. What really matters is that the environment is right for kids and that they're doing things that are age-appropriate and good for kids. But the other piece of it that's so confusing is that there's no central place for parents to find out what their options are. No, it's crazy. I was pre-day.
0: Googling it all weekend. I'm like, what? Yeah. I mean, I know that my preschool— goes another year, uh, because she's also, you know, the whole thing about, like, when was your child born, and if you have a fall birthday, then in Los Angeles, I guess you're eligible for state-funded pre-K, but I couldn't figure out where she would go, and I'm like, Mm -hmm. this is confusing for me. I can't imagine... For other families. Somebody
1: who doesn't have internet access or doesn't speak the language or, yeah. And in a lot of places, certainly where I live, the best information comes from talking to other parents who have been to information sessions. And if you're not connected into that kind of network or you're connected into a parent network, but your parent network is all people who are new to the country or new to the city and you're all, you know, kind of struggling together, it can be really problematic in terms of making sure that everybody has an equal opportunity. And... That comes from, in part, the fact that currently the early childhood system is a real patchwork of options. There are private programs that families find themselves and pay tuition, or if you're from a low-income family, often you'll be eligible for a state tuition waiver that you can use at the program. And then there's a variety of public programs. Some of them are funded by cities and school districts. Some are funded by the state. There are programs specifically for low income families like Head Start. So it's very, very confusing and in a few cases, there are there are cities that are trying to streamline that process. For example, in Washington, D.C., they've done this really interesting thing where the school district, which offers universal pre-K for three- and four-year-olds, has blended their work and their funding with Head Start so that whether families come in the Head Start door or the public school door and whatever classroom they end up in, they get a similar experience.
0: I want to share that in the book, you know, I was... I didn't expect to get so like emotionally stirred up in reading it. Mm-hmm. When you talk about the Head Start program and the testing that's been done, it was really upsetting to realize how often children are misunderstood. And yeah. uh, you give a great example about a test where a child is supposed to point out which of the drawings or illustrations is a vase. hmm And you say, you know, the kids might be getting it wrong because at their home, they might be putting flowers in jars or in other vessels and not just vases. And I was like, my daughter would think that too. So you give these great examples of how in the classroom or on these tests, children can be so misunderstood and that it's upsetting to think about how often a child could be dismissed or basically told that they're wrong or that not to trust what they're saying just because adults aren't more creative in their thinking, like they're not getting in the child's brain.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And that is one of the things that was most interesting to me in learning about good teachers and what they do. And one of the things that it's difficult to see at first and is easy to miss is that good teachers are – empathic and curious about kids and why they do what they do and why they say what they say. And I talk a lot in the book about the importance of curiosity and I think when we talk about curiosity, we often think about encouraging our kids to be curious. But great teachers are also curious about kids and about why things are working in their classrooms or why they're not. You know, And, and good teachers are reflective about what's going on and about what they can be flexible about. And that's something that's a really difficult skill to develop. And in the book, I talk about a coach in Boston who works with early childhood teachers to help them continually improve their practice. And she talks about wanting teachers to be relentless researchers of their classroom. And I love that. Um, I also, I have a chapter in the book called beautiful little puzzles because that's how I think of it, that all children should be approached as beautiful little puzzles to understand and solve. And um, you know, you've, you've found a good classroom and a good teacher when they can figure out every kid and they can see the best in every kid. And I think that's why it's so important to try to avoid too much standardization, too much quantification. And I'm not completely anti-assessment, but it should be done in an age-appropriate way. And it should be done in a way that's helpful to teachers and programs, but doesn't label individual kids.
0: So you also share that studies show that children learn more from guided play than totally unstructured free play. Because, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, f- f- like my daughter's at a play-based preschool. and um, mm-hmm. But I was very interested in that idea of guided play. So you talk about thought-provoking and open-ended questions. Uh, I'm wondering if you could share some lines we can say
1: to our kids, basically. Sure. And I think it's important to note that kids do need time for free play. That's really important. But in classrooms and even in our homes, we want them to have some times when they are intentionally learning certain things and certain skills. And it's even less about developing basic skills and more about encouraging them in the process of thinking critically and deeply and learning something. I often hear parents talk about this this debate over play-based versus more structured and Young children learn best through play, period, whether it's free play or more structured. So a lot of preschools now will say on their websites and in their information sessions that they're play-based, and that's great, and it's really important. I'm not sure how much it really means now because I think Mm -hmm. everybody kind of says it. So there are different kinds of play, and when I talk about guided play, Research shows us that if you want kids to learn something specific, you have to set up the learning environment in a particular way that's going to encourage them to do that and then ask them questions that are going to push them and nudge them in a gentle way to think a little bit more deeply about what they're doing. So, for example, I visited an early childhood classroom in New Jersey where the coaches and the teachers told me that they had evolved over time from an approach where they just put out materials and let kids do whatever came to them and and whatever they thought of to using a slightly more, I don't even want to say structured, but a slightly more shaped curriculum where they would set up a number of activities, six or seven activities at different tables, and kids could go around And choose their activities. And they had lots of opportunity to have autonomy, but there was a learning goal in mind. So I think, for example, about a classroom that I visited many times in Boston that did this really well. And at one table, there was a math game called Apple, what was it called? Um, Hi-ho, Cherryo. It's kind (coughs) of a counting game and it's a board game. And that's a game you get at the store. I'm not endorsing it per se. It's just one of those games that's out there. Um, hey, at another I want table, sponsors. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> at another table, kids were, they had cards that had the first letter of their first name. And they were gluing yarn in the shape of the letter or using macaroni and gluing it over the shape of the letter. And to them, that was fun and that was arts and crafts, but it was also teaching them about the letter that's at the beginning of their name. And those kinds of things help kids to develop skills and to push them a little bit further, but they, but they are fun and they're playful. And then to give you another example, you can kind of embed this philosophy also in slightly more free play. So, for example, when kids are playing with blocks, there were a group of boys in this classroom who were building ramps out of blocks. And the teacher came over and sat with them and asked them a lot of really interesting questions. You know, what are you doing? And then she would ask them, well, what happens if you try this? Another one of these open-ended questions that encouraged them to experiment and see what would happen if they changed the angle of the blocks. And so the boys got more and more curious and they tried more and more things. And she would say, well, what do you think is going to happen when we make it steeper? They would say, well, it's going to probably go faster. How do you know that? What makes you think that? And that question, how do you know, is a question that this teacher had learned from one of the really amazing coaches in the Boston public schools that I write about a lot in the book. Her name is Marina Boney. And, it's a question that shows kids that you take them seriously, and it also really encourages them to think deeply. So how do you know? What do you think will happen? What kinds of questions are, are really great for helping kids be thinkers.
0: hmm And I also, in my notes, said, what do you notice about? And then the one mm-hmm. that I really loved was, like, how can we build it? I just take for granted yeah. so often when I'm playing with my daughter, like, well, this is the way it should be. And it's like, no, stop. Like, little researcher, let her share it with me. And then her way is usually like a million times more inventive than what I want to sort of put on our experience together. Like she, And it makes it way more entertaining for me to play with her because she's so yes. much more inventive than I am.
1: That's so true. And I remember reading about this in art and craft projects with kids, too, that instead of asking them, oh, did you draw a bear? We should say things like, tell me about your drawing. Because if it's not at all intended to be a bear, then you open up the conversation rather than shutting it down. And having the child say, oh, yeah, that's what I meant to draw. So actually last night
0: I was looking at my daughter. She had colored in a dinosaur at school. And so it was on our kitchen island. And I said, "Well, you know, what is the red for? Because there's all this red around the mouth?" And I was like, "This is sort of violent, like <laughs> she? right? I'm imagining the dinosaur definitely ate somebody. And I said, "What's the red for?" And she goes, "Well, that's the dinosaur's fire." And I was like, "Oh, okay.
1: Oh, it, you know yeah, I totally different <laughs> totally different, totally different. And I think you know, once you start to think this way, you also realize that you can use it for children's behaviors, too. And the teachers I observed, we're really good at getting kids to express themselves and explain their thinking about what they were doing. I mean, unfortunately, I did see some teachers say things like, "What are you thinking?" I don't mean that, but when they sit down with kids and say, "You know, why did you grab that away from him?" or "Why are you why are you screaming?" Try to tell me in calm words what's going on. That gets back again to this idea of kids being little puzzles and, and trying to teach them how to express themselves, how to regulate themselves, and it's pretty amazing how mature they can become when you entrust them with that.
0: You talk a lot about executive functioning, and on the podcast we, you know, all the time we're talking about fight or flight, and with the self-regulation, I want people to read this book cuz you've got some great examples of how again we misunderstand our children where there's a little boy who whenever he spells the first letter of his name, he flips it, or it's like the B is always flipped the six, backwards. Writing the six backwards. The six yep. backwards. That's it. So this so listeners, this little boy is always writing a six, but it's always backwards. And read the book to figure out why he does that, because it's not why we would think. It just makes you stop and think, oh, man, you know, we, we have these ideas of why our children are behaving a certain way or, like, why can't they just figure this out? And and we might be totally off base as to why they're doing a certain a thing a certain way. And it's hopeful,
1: too, because when you read the story, you'll realize that the fix was actually really simple.
0: Really simple. And it makes me think about what are the ways that my child acts impulsively, And what are more creative ways that I can get her to take a moment, a deep breath? We're about to fly to New York, and she gets really ramped up at the airport. And it's like, okay, well, how can I help her? What are going to be my strategies to help her executive functioning.
1: That's so exciting to hear because I, I do I find it really inspiring too. And so I'm really glad that it inspires you to kind of look look deeper and say, what is she worried about and what strategies can we give her? Yeah. And also kids are pretty good at coming up with their own strategies, amazingly enough. If you can That's help crazy. them pinpoint what's going on, sometimes they can they can help you come up with Again, a strategy.
0: Like they'll come up with the solutions for us. Mm-hmm. So this blew my mind. I've got to share it before we go. It's this idea of pretend play and using distancing as a helpful strategy for problem solving. Basically, you give an example in the book of um, some children playing in a classroom, and the teacher is saying, you know, Batman needs to figure something out. And so the kids are helping Batman figure out what to do. And can you just explain to our listeners, I'm sure so much better than I can, like why you would use Batman in a learning setting or yeah. or how distancing can help a child.
1: This comes from a really fascinating study by a researcher named Stephanie Carlson. Uh, that study's called, What Would Batman Do?, And we've known for a long time that pretend play is good for children in all kinds of ways, but we've started to learn that it helps them develop their executive functioning and their self-regulation. And so she did this study where she had, it was like a, I think it was some sort of a delay of gratification task where kids had to wait for something that they really wanted. And she had one group where she just asked them to wait. She had another group where she asked them to envision that they were a character and the kids could choose the character. It could be Batman or Dora the Explorer or Rapunzel or, you know, whoever resonated with them. And then there was a third group that was sort of somewhere between those two groups where they asked the kid to think about him or herself in the third person to kind of step outside themselves. And so she would read them the, she would read them the task, the question and say, you know, you really want this street, but you have to wait. What do you do? or Stephanie really wants this trait. What should she do? Or in the case of Batman, you are Batman. And what would Batman do in this situation? And she found that kids were able to wait the longest and to have the most self-control when they were pretending to be one of the characters and her research suggests that the reason for that is that it's easier for kids to control their impulses when they step back from the situation and they distance themselves from being part of the situation. And part of this comes from, your listeners have probably all heard about the marshmallow studies that Walter Mischel did many years ago that showed that kids who could wait longer to eat a treat in a study went on to have better life outcomes in in the long run. And he looked at why that was. And he found that the kids who were able to wait longest had good strategies for helping themselves wait. So some kids told him they envisioned putting a picture frame around the treat or they turned around so that they weren't looking at it. And they had strategies that kind of took them out of the present moment so that they could wait better. And Dr. Carlson's studies are showing the same kind of thing, but it turns out that kids can get there also by pretending and I think there may also be something else about specific characters, and she said that they're hoping to look further into this. But when I think about, for example, like Daniel Tiger saying to your child, well, what would Daniel Tiger do in this situation? If that's a character that has modeled certain skills like kindness or patience or waiting, I think it also gives kids kind of a heuristic to, to follow.
0: Mm-hmm. I've tried that one. It didn't work. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> with Daniel. <Tyker>. <laughs> but <laughs> I have been like, Sabrina. It doesn't what? always work right in the moment in every situation, <laughs> you know. But you know Batman. All patterns over time. Batman would definitely work with my daughter. I also think that's inter- it's interesting, and maybe this might be a part of the study, maybe not, but I think of how when my girlfriend has a problem, if it's her problem, I am full of solutions. Mm-hmm. But if it's my problem, I can't figure anything out.
1: Right, exactly. That kind of distancing yourself a little bit from the situation. Because I, and I think part of it is the, the neuroscience of executive functioning. Our ability to self-regulate and use all of our executive functions is dampened when we have a rush of hormones and neurotransmitters that are associated with stress and being very emotional. So that could be part of it as well.
0: Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I want to share with our listeners that both of us have – well, I have a baby and you have a toddler. They're both doing their nap right now. So we've been doing this podcast during nap time. We've both been like one year out hoping that they don't wake up. And amazingly, they both stayed to sleep. I know. It's podcasting without a net. This is
1: (laughs) super exciting. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun to talk to you.
0: Uh, Everybody, please uh, go check out The Most Important Year, Pre-Kindergarten and the Future of Our Children. It's excellent. I love all the personal stories you share in this. I love the teacher's journeys. There is so much work for us all to do, figuring out how we can... Uh, how to give all children the right start. Our teachers need a lot more support. And there are like many, many inventive tips and strategies that I pulled from this of what teachers are doing in the classroom that I can do when Sabrina gets home from school. Thank you so much for all of your work in early childhood development, Suzanne. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, and thank you for sharing this and, and all of the other stories on your great podcast.
0: Okay, everybody, until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness, rock on, Atomic Moms.